Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of stuff. The Bible, we've talked about, uh, cons- uh, we've talked about clothing, we've talked about politics, um, all sorts of things. Today, uh, I want to do three things. The first thing I want to do is introduce a biblical concept. I'm trying to present a worldview to everyone. I want you to see the world differently. Like you put on a pair of glasses. I want you to see the world, everything in the world, through the lens of what we're talking about, through the scripture and through the Bible. And I want you to see the kingdom. And I want you to see everything else through that lens. And so I'm presenting a worldview. So one worldview I want to present is what the the Bible you see in the scripture is is a, a culture of abundance versus a culture of scarcity. So we're gonna talk about that. And so stay with me. This is kind of a more, I'm just gonna show you something in scripture, make an observation about it. And then I'm gonna go into talking about the most, um, the, the greatest threat the American church faces. So that's light and easy and we'll love that one. And then, uh, and just invite you, because this is part one. Next week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build off of this talk. So this is part one of a two-part talk. Um, next week, we're gonna talk about um, some practical things, but I want to introduce a way to move forward um, in the ways of Jesus this morning as we talk about this threat. Okay, sound good? Lost you at rapture, didn't I? It's fine. Um, Genesis chapter one. If you have a Bible, I love starting in the beginning. Um, Genesis chapter one. I will go here a lot because I just want to give you this. So we're, we're going to talk about scarcity and abundance. So um, Genesis one, verse one. Um, in the beginning, if you don't have a Bible, a screen, the words are going to be on the screen. There's some Bibles up in front. You can download it on your iPad or iPhone or Android or whatever. There's plenty of apps. You have access to the Bible. Um, the Bible um, doesn't read itself. That's the thing. So just read the Bible. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse three, God spoke. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and he called the darkness. He called night and there was evening and there was morning. It was the first day. Then it goes on and it says, God creates the waters, the sky, the land. It's a a poem. If you've ever read Genesis, this is a poem. And it's, it's this, there's this cadence, there's this rhythm. God creates the land and the vegetation and plants and then he creates the moon and the sun. And over and over again, you see that it's good. It's good. It's like this beat. It's good. God creates and it's good. And it keeps saying that God creates birds and the fish and it was good. He creates animals and humans and he creates humans and it's very good. Look, skip down to verse 28. We've read this a bunch. I'm not gonna spend too much time here. I just wanna make this subtle point. Verse 28, God blessed them. And then said to them, after he creates humans, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant. So in creation, creation creates more creation. God creates this environment that creates other environments and other forms of life. That's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. It's dynamic. It's not static. The creation itself is life-giving. He says, um, uh, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. 
They, uh, they will be your food. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. So there is this sense that in creation, um, it's providing for itself, do you see this? And it was so, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It worked. It was another Hebrew word, like phrase for good is it functioned, it worked. Or um, the word beauty actually applies here. It was beautiful. And there was evening and there was morning. It was the sixth day. So let me just, the Bible begins with this um, liturgy of abundance. I want you to see this. It begins with this liturgy of abundance. It was good. It produces. It's more good. It produces more for itself. And, and, and Genesis 1 is, is a song of praise of God's great generosity. It tells the world that it was ordered well. It, was, it began the way it should be. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It, it declares that God blesses creation. That it, 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 creation itself is endowed with vitality, plants and animals and fish and birds and humankinds. And the picture is the creator of the universe saying, be fruitful and multiply. Do you see this in the scripture? I just want you to see it. Go to Genesis 12. Just giving you a snapshot. Uh, Genesis 12, verse one. We've looked at this passage as well. I just want you to see these key kind of concepts in the first book of the Bible because they're gonna be challenged in just a moment. So verse 12, it says, I'm sorry, verse one of chapter 12 of Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Listen to this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God tells this family who becomes a tribe and a nation that he will bless all peoples, all the people on the earth through this one unique family. So I want you to think about this, that you see in the scripture blessing is this is a quote from Walter Brueggemann. Blessing is the force of well-being active in the world. Blessing is a force of well-being active in the world and faith is simply the awareness that creation is the gift that keeps on giving. You have to see this. I know this is so hard for us and it's hard because of our culture. So we're gonna get there in a moment, but I need you to see this. It's so important because when I was preparing this week, I was like, aha, there's, a, there's something that we have, to, we have to identify with in our own culture and in our own hearts that is challenging this mindset of abundance. Abundance is simply this. There's enough to go around. There's enough for everyone. And what you see in the scripture is this dominant paradigm, this worldview, this way of seeing creation as a gift itself from God that creates more for itself and provides. And it itself um, is a gift that keeps on giving. This is the awareness that dominates Genesis until you get to chapter 47. So if you have a Bible, go to 47. Forty-seven. In this chapter, Pharaoh dreams, has a dream about a great famine coming into the land. And so Pharaoh gets organized to administer, control, and monopolize the food supply in chapter 47. Pharaoh introduces a principle. Um, the principle of scarcity into the world's economy. This is the first time we read about in Genesis in the book, in the Bible. And so for the first time in the Bible, someone actually says there's not enough to go around 
let us get everything we can. Before this, there's plenty. Creation will provide for itself. All of this is a gift. Receive it. Now, there's a limited supply. Let us take as much as we can because we might not have enough for later. Are you with me? So Pharaoh introduces scarcity. Just stay with me for a moment as we go to Genesis 47, verse 30, uh, 13. Verse 13, so he has this dream and this is what happens. There was no food, however, in the whole region because of the, the famine was severe. So both Egypt and Canaan was wasting away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt. Joseph was hired by Pharaoh to organize um, the kingdom of Egypt. And he was to, uh, to be found in Egypt in Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he, he bought it to the, uh, brought it to the Pharaoh's palace. Okay, listen to this. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and they gave to, uh, them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, and their goats, their cattle, and donkeys. And he brought them um, through, I'm sorry, he, he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. So here's what's going on. I just want to introduce this idea. Pharaoh hires Joseph to manage the monopoly. When the crops fail and the peasants run out of food, they come to Joseph. And on behalf of Pharaoh, Joseph says, what's your collateral? What do you have to give? So they give up their land for food. And then they give up the next year their cattle. And then they, the third year the famine comes and they have no collateral but themselves. And this is how the children of Israel become slaves to Egypt through the introduction of scarcity. Somebody, that, that literally there was not enough to go around. God's abundant world is not providing. And so when they have nothing else to give, they give themselves. And the Israelites wind up being enslaved to Pharaoh through his empire. The empire is created to oppress the weak. And it's based on the simple concept known as scarcity. It is the state of being in short supply. Is there really enough to go around? And what scarcity does is it produces I want you to think about this culture of abundance, the idea there's plenty to go around. There will be enough for tomorrow because there's enough for today. This is how it begins in God's world. Scarcity comes into the story and all of a sudden there's not enough to go around and what's produced is fear. There's not enough. Anxiety, I gotta make sure I have enough for my family, my tribe, my people. And then it goes into control. So you start controlling the systems to make sure you have enough and it moves into competition and eventually the empire moves to brutality. You see it. Scarcity versus abundance in God's world, it produces this sort of, of, of anxiety, of fear and control. Now let's just stay in, in the story of the Bible and we'll pull out in just a moment. So we get to the book of Exodus. Okay, so this is the end of Genesis and Exodus is a story um, the Exodus story is the story of God's people relearning how to live in God's abundant world. So think about this. What's confronted is who's God? The Egyptians' God, uh, gods or Yahweh. And Yahweh introduces this whole new idea, this concept of abundance. So he frees the slaves from, uh, out of Egypt, the Israelites, and makes them his own people. And what he has to do over and over again is teach them how to engage in this world the way they were intended to engage in the first place as real humans, as God's chosen people. And what you learn in the wilderness is dependence on a God who's always going to provide. 
And he reintroduces abundance. What is, where does it come? It comes in the form of daily bread. Exodus 16, God says, look, I'm going to provide for you. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to go to sleep. Now pause right there. Take a deep breath. Because there are so many of you that are exhausted right now. And this is a prophetic moment for you. God, I know this. This is in my own life. You're anxious, you're worried, you're exhausted, you're barely getting through the week. And God's telling you, right, I believe this with all my heart, you need to sleep and trust him to provide. He says to the Israelites, go to sleep. And when you wake up, there's gonna be this flaky stuff on the ground. And I want you to collect what you need for the day. Don't get more than you need for tomorrow because it won't, it won't last. And on, on the day before Sabbath, collect enough for two days. So that's the rules. And guess what? They wake up, they see this white flaky stuff on the ground it's after the dew is gone. And they call it, what is it? Which means manna. It's, they call it manna in Hebrew, which means what is it? <laughs> so they pick up what is it? And I don't know on third um, was there... Uh, uh, Oh, bringing back the days. <laughs> I actually won a competition when I was in drama and theater for that. Thank you very much. Who's on first? Um, okay, so they pick up what is it, and guess what they do? Some of them get more than they need because that's what we do when we have a culture of scarcity, when we think we're slaves, when bread actually costs something like your entire life and you know there's not gonna be enough for tomorrow, when you've been trained that, to believe that to work for bread is to, to gruel, to fight, to, to go day after day to produce for your own self. You don't know that there's a God who provides, but when you're introduced to Yahweh who says, just get what you need for today, everything inside of you is working against that provision. Because God's provision is for today. God's generosity is only for today. It's not stored up for tomorrow. Guess what? He'll be generous tomorrow too. This is what it's like to be in relationship as the people of God to God. To enter into his world and see his world the way he sees it. There's enough. And brothers and sisters, do you know that there actually is enough produced in our world to sustain the world that we have, the population with population growth? The problem is distribution. We consume way more than we need to, which is getting us to our greatest threat in just a moment. So the culture of abundance versus the culture of scarcity, this is a mindset. I want you to just think, so this is what's present, that all of life is a gift. Generosity cannot be stored up for tomorrow. God's generosity is always present. Are we paying attention to it? Are we paying attention to the generosity of the Lord in our everyday life? Are we paying attention to the daily bread? So this is the question that the Bible teaches again and again, all throughout the Old Testament, this dependent relationship that God will provide all throughout the Old Testament. And we get this reaffirmed by Jesus in the New Testament over and over again. Will you live a life of abundance or will you live a life of scarcity? Do you believe there's enough to go around and God will provide? Will you work to ensure that there will be enough to go around? Will you leave the grapes in your field that have fallen for those that don't have enough? This is what God's economy looks like. This is what it looks like to be a part of God's community and people. And, and the mindset is the mindset of abundance. So I want you to just think, I mean, this gets really practical and I want to move to the next, but just think about the way 
you interact with life. Your friend gets the job promotion and you don't. So do you have a flow of abundance that, hey, there's plenty of job promotions in this world? Or is it limited? Is it scarce? If he gets it, that means that I don't get it. So all of a sudden, the blessing on this life is not shared as you bless what God's doing in their life. Do you see this? I'm, I was struggling to try to communicate this. I couldn't really figure it out. But it's like when, when someone else receives a great gift, are you jealous because you don't have it living in scarcity? Or do you see that God's abundant provision is everywhere? And this is one example. And as you bless it, you're aligning yourself to the way this world is designed to work in the first place. So that's the mindset piece. Are we living in abundance or scarcity? I'm not saying that God wants to give you a Cadillac or whatever car, Tesla. No, God doesn't. Some of you are like, that is my prayer. Jesus, give me the Cadillac. Jesus, take the electric wheel. Sometimes, sometimes I wish I could censor, like just a little bit, but too much in the moment. Okay, so I'll end on this. Both scarcity and abundance breed more of themselves. Scarcity produces more anxiety, fear, more control, burnout, and exhaustion. Just think about this. In your relationships, in the way you live your life, it produces more of itself. Fear, anxiety, control, burnout, and exhaustion. Scarcity produces exhaustion. Abundance produces more generosity, joy, peace, and rest. To believe in abundance is to believe that we have enough, even when the future is uncertain. And you get to John 6, Verse 12, it's not gonna be on the screen, but look at what happens. Jesus teaches, when he, he does the miracle of 5,000, of, of providing food, excuse me, um, feeding the 5,000. It says at the end, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So they gathered 12 baskets full after they just had pieces, five, five loaves and two fish. They had 12 baskets left over. That's the culture of abundance. The miracle of recognizing creation will provide for itself. So we start here with this concept because um, consumerism is built on scarcity. Consumerism is the greatest threat to the American church. Amen. More than anything else, if we're gonna call it the sin of, of the United States, the sin of the church, it's consumerism. And maybe some of you didn't see it coming. That's the problem. Because it is accepted and unchallenged. It is the, uh, the accepted and unchallenged water that we are all guilty of swimming in. And it dominates our worldview, our paradigm, and it drives our society forward, whether you're Democrat, Green, Libertarian, or Republican. Consumerism is what, I mean, literally after September 11th, after September 11th, George W. Bush said, America, go shop. Do you know this? This is literally, he had a speech to say, go and buy more stuff to help the economy move forward. It's built on consumerism and, and it dominates our way of life. So Walter Brueggemann has this great quote. He says, though many of us well-intentioned, well -intentioned, we have invested our lives in consumerism. We have a love affair with more and we will never have enough. Consumerism is not simply a marketing strategy. It has become a demonic spiritual force among us. And the theological question facing us is whether the gospel has the power to help 
us withstand it. Consumerism is built on scarcity, that there is not enough. And scarcity is the deep belief that no matter how much we actually have, it is not enough. Therefore, we have to scale, we have to grow, we have to do more, grow or die. And the system of scarcity feeds on itself. So we deny the abundance of God's creation. And we're taught by lots and lots of advertisements every day that not only is there not enough, but that we are not enough. This is the greatest lie that, that we literally swim in every single day. That consumerism is built on the fact they're teaching you, it's propaganda. The advertisements are telling you that you are not enough. There is a void inside of you. There is something missing. And what is required is more. It, it looks like this. Here's a quick little formula I put together. It's called the happy, happiness formula. It says this, U plus X equals the smiley face emoji. X equals more. This is, I promise you, this is what they're selling. This is, this, this is what every advertisement is doing to you. They're telling you that as you watch this, the, the guy in the car with a beautiful woman next to him at a night going out and night driving the car, they're telling you that what you're missing in this life, what will bring satisfaction is a new car or a new pair of pants or a new shirt or that type of shirt, or that type of product. It, literally what's inside is that you are not enough. So more is relationships, it's sex, it's, it's drugs, it's everything that you could possibly commoditize. Some people have sold, literally in Nebraska, there's a story of a man selling his forehead. He, he would tattoo on his forehead a brand because we, we can be sold as advertisement space. Humans can do that. I mean, this is what consumerism has done. It's produced this deep, deep uh, dissatisfaction with, within us. And, and here's the problem, and this is what I wanted to address, is more than just identifying it, because I wrestle with it myself, it's deeper than just the acquisition of goods. It's deeper than, okay, guys, um, I just want to buy more stuff. It's deeper than just Amazon Prime. Um, it's, it's not just the, okay, I'm not enough and I need to add more to my life to be enough. And so I buy something and now I feel better about myself. Because what happens is you open the box and it only lasts for a few moments. That feeling of, I feel better about myself. I'm more. The heart of consumerism is not the buying. The heart of consumerism is the shopping. It's the distance between me and that box, whatever that box is in your life. The distance that I travel, the pursuit of the acquisition is actually what is filling me up because we're detached from lots of products. We are, we're not, our, our issue, most of us, is not hoarding stuff, although we have lots of stuff. I'll talk about that in a second. The issue is not the stuff that we've hoarded. Actually, it's that we're no longer attached to our stuff in ways that are healthy. So this is why fast fashion, we've talked about this with True Cost, why fast fashion has exploded because you don't have to buy expensive clothes to have cool style. You can buy cheap clothes and lots of it all the time and you don't realize that it's having a horrible impact on our environment. It's creating a modern day slave movement. 80% of the factory garment workers um, are working in countries that pay them nothing and they're being forced to work seven days a week and leave their families. I mean, there's a whole, we did the whole true costing, but that's the problem is we're no longer attached to the stuff that we're buying. We're not connected. We're just told that we're empty and you should go buy more. So just go and do that. And that's where our devotion comes in. And just think about that for a moment. 
that it's not the acquiring of goods, but it's, it's the obtaining of the goods. It's the, dis, dis, the, the, the temporary halt of our dissatisfaction only to do it again. And that process is highly formative. The shopping is highly formative. And you're like, why is the pastor talking about shopping? Because this is the greatest threat to our discipleship to Jesus Christ. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the only personified God that Jesus names in all of the New Testament. It is the God of wealth, possessions, and stuff. He says you will be ripped apart if you try to do both. And we haven't just challenged consumerism, we've embraced it and we accept it and we swim in the middle of it because nothing changes as we say, I bless you, Jesus, and I have my whatever product in my other hand. Would you skip to that picture real quick while I'm here? It's not in order. This is Banksy and it's highly offensive, but this is a holiday picture that Banksy put up. And I think it's, it couldn't be more accurate. Doesn't that make you sick? Americans spend $450 billion or more on this consumer holiday as Chris, known as Christmas, which, by the way, celebrates an immig- immigrant refugee day laborer who was a minority in a global military superpower who led a revolution against systems that oppressed the minorities and the whole human race. And we celebrate it by buying lots of stuff for our friends and family. I'm guilty. I'm not standing on a high horse, although I'm on a platform. I'm talking about the deeper issues. Let's just talk one real quick. And remember, this is part one. So I'm gonna leave you a bit hanging today to let you wrestle as we go in. Because next week, we're gonna do part two, which is perfect. Because what's the, what's the beginning of all spiritual wisdom? I think it's actually gratitude. God, thank you, God. All of this is yours. So how do we learn contentment, which comes out of a a thankful heart, how do we learn that as we head into Advent, as we head into a season where we slow down to celebrate the the Messiah who was born in in a feeding trough? So, where was I? (laughs) consumerism, advertisements. Okay, let's just go. I'm gonna just list a bunch of stuff and this is gonna make us feel all uncomfortable. And if you're new, so glad you're with us. Um, (laughs) Please come back for part two where I make you more uncomfortable. Um, And and the reason for this talk, uh, uh, I just think it's a prophetic moment in in my own heart and life where God's been speaking to me about this for, for a long time now. But it's also, I think, for the church. The church needs to wake up to some of these realities. We can stand literally on a soapbox pointing out specific issues in culture, society that we might think are really important. Only we have this giant log in our eye that is actually hindering us from a full picture of who Jesus is. So that's why we're talking about this. So our world will lead you to believe your greatest contribution in society is the money money that you spend. So we are faced with 5,000 advertisements a day calling us to buy more. And as a result, the average consumer debt equals $8,000 per household. Shopping malls outnumber high schools and Americans spend more on jewelry and shoes than higher education. And 93% of teenage girls rank shopping as their favorite pastime. The average woman in the Western culture will spend eight years of their entire life shopping. Okay, 
So normal, I love this quote, normal is getting dressed in clothes that you buy for work and driving through traffic in a car that you still are paying for in order to get to the job. You need to pay for the clothes in the car and the house you leave vacant all day so you can afford to live in it. (laughs) So here's a bunch of quotes, ready? Uh, A bunch of statistics. There are 300,000 items in the average American home. (laughs) The average size of the American home has nearly tripled in size over the past 50 years. One out of every 10 Americans rent off-site storage, the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the past four decades. This is amazing. The United States has upward of 50,000 storage units, meaning space outside of the home to store your stuff that's extra. More than five times the number of Starbucks. That's crazy. Currently, there is 7.3 square feet of self-storage space for every man, woman, and child in the nation. So that you can physic, it's physically possible for every American to stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing. British research found that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but only plays with 12 daily. 1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. The average American woman owns 30 outfits, one for every day of the week, or every month, excuse me, Depends on how many days you have in your week. Um, In 1930, that figure was only nine. The average American family spends $1,700 on clothes annually, while the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. So now we're hearing the crickets. Nearly half of American households don't save any money, but our homes have more television sets than people, and those television sets are turned on for more than a third of the day. That's eight hours and 14 minutes. Some reports indicate we consume twice as many material goods today as we did 50 years ago. And currently, the 12% of the world's population that lives in North America and Western Europe account for 60% of private consumption spending, while one-third living in South Asian Saharan Africa accounts for 3.2%. Americans donate 1.9% of their income to charitable causes, while 6 billion people worldwide worldwide live on less than $13,000 a year. Americans, excuse me, just a couple more. Is this okay? Um, maybe not. Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches. That's $100 billion than higher education. And Americans, this is crazy to me, spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods. In other words, items they do not need. And Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. This is why consumerism is our greatest threat because it's built on scarcity that you aren't enough and you won't have enough so you, the, the solution is more. This is the culture we're swimming in. This is where we live. So how do we interact in this? And my hope in this confrontation, I suppose, of the American life, the American way, is just to expose the reality of consumerism. And um, next week, I wanna offer a potential alternative way that we can live and redeem this culture. Because I don't think the solution is to simply just sell everything and live amongst the poor. Although some of us are called to do that. And so that is a solution for some of us. That's what Jesus said actually to the rich young ruler. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Um, So what are some ways that we can, that are fully biblical that we can begin to move away from this consumeristic spirituality because it is a form of spirituality. Consumer, buying stuff gives us meaning, identity, and purpose. It's also a way that we connect with other people. I heard a girl um, 
uh, say that it was whenever she was having a bad day, her mom would take her shopping as the solution. So for her, it was how she also felt love from her parents. So how do we interact then in this world? How do we learn to navigate the waters that we're all swimming in? And how do we learn to offer a better way to live? Because some of you, you're just gonna keep swimming and that's fine. But some of us, maybe we can pull out of this water for a moment, take a look at it, and then enter in with some helpful ways to move forward that are less destructive and less harmful to our souls in our discipleship. Does that make sense? Let me just end then with this, because I love, I think we started with this idea that bread is a gift and that the way God teaches um, his people in Exodus, the culture of abundance is through daily bread called manna. And Jesus says in John chapter six, verse 26, he says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves that I, and had your fill. Listen to what he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the God, uh, on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Verse 32 says, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who, gave, who has given you the bread for, from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Jesus is the bread of life. If we're gonna move forward in this culture, we have to believe that with our heart, mind, soul, with our wallets, with our lifestyles, with our purchases, with how we consume, with all sincerity. And the only way to challenge the empire, the culture, is to see that Jesus is the only one who satisfies. And consumerism is the driving force of the society and culture we live in, but Jesus is Lord. And we have to free ourselves from this addiction, free ourselves from this trap, free ourselves from this broken system, and find an alternative way together as Jesus begins to satisfy our deepest desires and needs. Because the truth is, you are enough. The lie is you aren't. Because God created an abundant world where humans in right relationship with God are enough as they are. And this is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to, to fill you and to, to redefine your life and to provide for all the things that is within you. The hunger, the thirst, the need for love, that's placed in there by God. And Jesus is the only thing that will satisfy you. So as you pursue stuff, relationships, more, you have to recognize that the only thing that will ever truly satisfy you is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Not some belief about him, but a relationship with him. Not some religious practice about him or with him, but a relationship with him. Only a relationship with Jesus whose reigning and ruling will satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Only that is our hope as we move forward together. Amen? I wanna, I wanna close, and this will lead us into next week with this great quote from, Hen, uh, let's put it up, from David Foster Wallace. I, keep, I always go like Foster David Wallace. He says this, the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad pretty little unsexy ways every day. 
It's about simple awareness, awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again that this is water, this is water. So brothers and sisters, we swim in the water of consumerism. This is water, this is water. Jesus is the only thing that will satisfy. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.